Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with me. If you're a first-time listener to Money Talks, I'm really glad you're here because we're talking about what I think is the key financial challenge for everyone today, and that is the declining purchasing power of your currency. And there's much more to come. I'm very worried about this. That's why I'm so pleased to welcome with me one of Canada's leading business people, but also leading investor, Frank Justra, is going to be with me. We're talking about why money isn't really money anymore and what you need to do to keep it safe. I've often said that the big challenge for us going forward is how do you protect the purchasing power of your currency? We're gonna talk more about that. I think it's essential listening. This is what you must be aware of. I've also got Mike Levy joining me about the federal government's double talk on the promised 15 billion in budget cuts and the latest insult to our intelligence, collective intelligence by our political leaders in the goofy. Plus I guess maybe it's no longer racist to say that China lied about COVID. Well, at least according to the Washington Post editorial board in our quote of the week. But first, every extreme weather event seems to be attributed by a lot of people to climate change. So no, I'm not surprised that the tragic wildfires have many in the media, in the public, academia, blaming them exclusively to climate change. There's not been many words spoken about the contribution to the disasters played by forest practices or human actions, which I guess is more politically satisfying but I don't think it does much as we prepare to mitigate the damage in the future. I mean, the wildfires in, you know, in BC, other parts of Canada, have the issue of climate change even more politicized, if that's possible. I guess because of the Conservative Party's opposition to the carbon tax, as some seek to gain political advantage. I mean, yes, emotions are running high. I mean, come on, we've been watching people's lives torn apart. I mean, has anybody been not shocked or dismayed by the pictures we've seen? The human tragedy as homes and whole communities are devastated. I mean, the usual vitriol ensued with the predictable accusations of climate denier, which right from the beginning of the climate debate, by the way, 20 plus years ago, was meant to evoke the uber negative connotations of the Holocaust. And more importantly, was meant to shut down discussion. No questions allowed of the prevailing narrative. I mean, that's the antithesis of science. But climate change is far more about politics than science. You know, personally, I've had enough of it because I don't like BS. I don't like being treated like an idiot. And the more an issue becomes politicized, well, the more the BS rises. I mean, it's always been disingenuous to say there are people who deny the climate is changing. Come on. You ever come across anyone who doesn't think the climate changes? Hello, Ice Age? I mean, the debate disagreement is the degree to which man drives climate change and what to do about it, if anything. But asking a question or challenging the prevailing narrative and government actions doesn't make someone a climate denier. I mean, are they really suggesting that people like the 2022 Nobel Prize winner in physics, Dr. John F. Clauser, is a climate denier? Because he recently stated, the popular narrative about climate change reflects a dangerous corruption of science. Misguided climate science has metastasized into a massive shock journalistic pseudoscience. By the way, Mr. Uh, Dr. Clauser and 1,609 others signed the World Climate Declaration of Clintel with its central message. There's no climate emergency. Are we really saying they're all climate deniers? As is climate expert Roger Pilkey Jr. from the University of Colorado asked, can you think of any area of science with a larger difference between what everyone knows for sure media, public, politicians, activists, and what is actually so? Data, peer-reviewed research, IPCC. I mean, the list is a lot longer, but I like the words of the new IPCC chairman, Jim Shea, who's recently stated, the world won't end if it warms by more than 1.5 degrees. He was discouraging the end to over-the-top rhetoric. I mean, but I guess some people aren't listening. I mean, we've got people like former environment minister, she's current head of the UN's net zero, Catherine McKenna, calling anyone who didn't support the carbon tax an arsonist. Are you kidding? I mean, but they never delve into why there are opponents, because one of the main reasons is that when the climate tax was introduced in 2008, it was revenue neutral. That meant all revenue collected was returned to individuals and businesses in the form of tax reductions. No revenue was kept in government. That's why it gained widespread support by individuals and business. But that's now changed and it's overlooked the impact. I mean, now, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, 
individual families are going to pay hundreds of dollars every year. In BC, it's worse than that because they don't even get partial rebates like you do on the federal level. No, you get no rebate if you're in the top, you know, the bottom 20% gets a break, but no one else does. 80% don't get a cent back. So let's put the blame for the backlash to the carbon tax where it belongs, to politicians who bastardized the revenue neutrality of the original tax. And he opened it up to criticism that it's simply a cash grab. The federal government with its partial rebate, the BC with no rebate for 80%. I mean, they had a choice. They could have put public support for climate action above their insatiable appetite for tax dollars, but they didn't, which is what has fueled so much of the opposition we see today. I mean, if climate change is a major concern, you should be furious with those politicians who remove the key component of revenue neutrality which supercharged opposition. But if you care more about politics than the climate, then I guess you won't be outraged. You'll ignore it, as most have. I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to one of Canada's leading business people. I was thinking about the list of accolades for Frank Schuster is so long, we'd have no time for the actual interview here. So let me just say this is a Hall of Famer in the business world, known internationally for his philanthropic works, but of course, uh, one of the icons of Canadian business here. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Frank, thanks for finding time with me. Hey, my pleasure. Always my pleasure. You know what grabbed me here is uh, you write for the Toronto Star, great for them, as You just did an article called Why Money Isn't Really Money Anymore. And boy, does that sing into the choir when you're looking at me. But it's the change in the monetary system that concerns me, the impact on individuals. So why do you say things like, you know, money just isn't what it used to be? It doesn't buy what it used to be, uh, used to rather, and has a tremendous impact, especially the lower down you are in the income scale, which now I say has moved way up on the income scale into the middle class. Right. Well, I I think that you first have to understand what money is supposed to be. And traditionally, money has been a uh, medium of exchange, a unit of account and a store of value. Uh, Medium of exchange, you buy and sell stuff. A unit of account is a way to measure the value of what you're buying and a store of value, meaning that you can it holds its value over time. Um, for a whole host of reasons which we can get into, mostly all the money, excessive money printing that's taken place uh, over the last uh, decade and a half, um, it's lost both unit of account uh, uh, function and store of value function. The only function I see left that it has is a medium of exchange. Um, everything is mispriced because there's been so much funny money created. So you can't really say it's a unit of account anymore because everything's mispriced as a function of excess money supply and uh and a store of value forget it you know as inflation yeah. starts to kick in which it has we had first a decade of asset inflation with after the 2008 financial crisis with all the money printing so the rich got richer uh asset prices went up because they were able to borrow money for no cost and buy all of the assets that they could possibly buy yeah. Uh, and then inflation has now kicked in into the consumer price index. We're seeing that the last year or so. And that, in my opinion, will continue. And as that inflation continues, the value of your purchasing power goes down. That's just simple math. And so uh, that, you know, it's it's really lost its uh, purchasing power. It's lost its trust and it's lost its there's not clear what function it has left. That's generally what money is. And I find that most people don't really understand what money is. They, you have to begin by understanding what it is and what your money in your bank account really, really means. And again, I, I find that most people don't understand what, what, what it means to have a deposit in a bank, what the banks actually do with that money and at the ratios they do it at <laughs> to create all of this credit. Um, you know, every time you deposit a dollar in your bank account, they can create $10 of new money. And so most money in, exi- in existence is just credit. It doesn't exist. You know, of the, I think it's, uh, there's 14 trillion, trillion US dollars in circulation. Uh, if you measure it by M2 money supply, only 11% of that is really actual cash that you can stick in your mattress and hide it and hold it and see it's real. The rest is a digital illusion. That money does not exist. And people don't get that. And they will only find out 
when there is a major currency crisis, which happens at the end of super debt cycles, which we're at at the moment. We're at the end of a 70-year super debt cycle, and we're starting to see the cracks now of all of the bad behavior by central banks and policymakers in general. Well, it's it's interesting that everybody is feeling it. They may not understand why. I mean, look at the housing market and the complaints about lack of affordability there. Those are hard assets that have been bid up, you know, uh, you know, fueled by both central bank policy and, of course, uh, fiscal policy at the same time. But it's an example of people may not appreciate what's happened, but, man, are they ever feeling the impact of it. Uh, there's something you said there that I, you know, it's one of our Money Talks themes that uh, I'd love you to elaborate on is that, People don't understand that what this paper thing in their hand really is. You know, uh, like if I don't trust it, for example, there's nobody listening today who I've said, hey, by the way, we're not going to pay you in dollars anymore. We're going to pay you in dinara or something like that, <laughs> you know, or, or lira or whatever you go throughout the world. They'd understand that, no, I don't think I want that to happen. But it's that whole element of trust that's been eroded here. It's a belief system. And, you know, money in general, no matter what you use for money, whether it's seashells, gold, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rocks, you know, whatever has been used throughout, you know, the centuries, paper money, it, it, it's based on trust. You have you as the holder of that money have to believe that it's worth something that you can take it a great distance and use that same rock, seashell, paper currency, gold. Yeah. And it will be accepted. So it's a collective belief system that we've all bought into. And it's based solely on trust. So what worries me is as the uh, policymakers, mostly the central banks, but also fiscal policymakers, continue to misbehave, to mistreat the value of that money uh, by creating huge amount of debt or printing huge amounts of money, it, that trust system will erode, and sometimes it ends in a crisis that happens very suddenly. As you know, as yeah. Ernest Hemingway once described bankruptcy, he said, you know, how did it happen? He said, well, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> and that's what's happening here, right in front of our eyes. And most people kind of feel that there's something wrong, but they don't really understand the severity of the problem and how it could possibly come to a conclusion, which will, will be very painful for almost everybody. Everybody will get hurt. Obviously, a certain, you know, I think the middle class and the poor will get hurt the most because they have no assets to rely on. You know, if their whole wealth is their savings account or what have you, or bonds or T-bills, you know, they're going to get hurt. They're going to get hurt either because that, you know, banks will fail or because inflation will eat away at the value of that paper money. Is it your impression that, like, literally, my impression is that the politicians don't understand this. This is a, a much bigger game, a bigger understanding of credit, of monetary systems, that kind of thing. But do you think the central banks don't know well, that's the danger going on here? As you said, this massive debt super cycle could blow up in our face. And, you know, my, I, yeah, go ahead, please. Right. No, I was just going to say, Michael, I've written about this a lot over the yeah. last, you know, 15 years. And I came to a simple conclusion central banks are not dumb. These are quite smart people, well-educated, but I believe they're complicit in the lie of what they're doing as a benefit to the general public. I think mm. that bank, central bankers are people from the banking industry. They, there's a revolving door between the major banks and the Federal Reserve, and they all toe the line while they're in power. The minute that they leave, if you take Greenspan and Bernanke, then they can criticize the actions of the central bank. While they're in power, they toe the line and they tell the big lie, which is, and their entire purpose is to anchor your inflation expectations. And they've more or less admitted that. Anchoring means they make you believe that inflation will not go up, will not continue to rise, or it doesn't even exist at all, or it's understated. And they do that because inflation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they understand how inflation works. If you believe that the prices of goods are going to go up, you're going to purchase before the price goes up and you fuel that price pressure for those goods to go up in price. And that's one of the key 
key ways in which inflation works. And they understand this very well. And they will tell you, as Bernanke said in 2001 or it was 2011 or 12, you know, we can unwind the balance sheet. We, you know, we, we can, you know, get rates up to, you know, the balance sheet has mainly stayed in these high levels of close to $9 trillion. They try and bring it down and another, another crisis happens yeah. and they have to print more money. And that will continue to be the reaction to every crisis that you will see going forward. Well, the reaction, as you've seen, and I'll go through, here's the other thing. The frequency of crises over the last 20 yes. years is increasing. The intermittent periods in between of crisis is shortening. You think about the dot-com crisis followed by 9-11, 2000, 2001. First time we saw a real effort to create easy money. That lasted more or less till 2008. Big crisis 2008. What do they do? Back to easy money policy. But then they also start printing money. 2019, you get the repo, uh, the repo yep. crisis. 2020, you get the pandemic crisis. 2021, you get the UK guilt crisis. 2022, uh, 2023, you've got the US banking crisis. And so every time these crises are becoming more and more frequent, and they're always addressed in the same manner, lower, you know, lower rates or print money or both. Okay, and so you keep adding fuel to this fire that, you know, eventually has to break, and it will break at some point, you know, I'm surprised it's lasted this long. And, you know, you've got all of and the problem is you've got a, a world with over $300 trillion in debt, that is at the end of a super cycle of debt, 70 year super cycle of debt, and they're running out of room for credit creation, they're, you know, and that's why I think we still remember when the, during the pandemic, they uh, took away the fractional 10% fractional yep. reserve limits on U.S. banks to zero, and they still haven't put them back up to 10%. That means credit creation, they're giving another boost to credit creation to keep the game going. So I, I honestly think that this is just one of these things that's going to end up uh, being a – it's going to end and, – and again, I don't know how it's going to end. I don't think anybody does, but it will be very painful which, whichever way it ends. Uh, just come back to a couple of points you make. I think it's important for people to understand how the frequency is increasing. I think I just think that's, you know, when you look past just the last couple of years, as you say, on Money Talks, we called the repo crisis, which was September 16, 2019. Nobody wanted to lend money in the overnight markets. Hence, interest rates, they said, well, uh, will you lend it to me if I pay you 4% or 6 or 8 And it eventually went to 10 Federal Reserve yeah. steps in. Um, as you said, then we had the UK uh, pension crisis in October. Uh, we've got the Japanese central bank right now uh, yeah, going after with trillions to keep that. But as you say, the frequency is huge and the response zone, I think this is key to understand, this isn't changing. There's no indication whatsoever this will not continue to be the response when yeah. we have a crisis. And that yeah, is the value of the value. Yeah. So I, mean, I just you mentioned, you mentioned the Bank of Japan. You know that they own 52 percent of the Japanese bond market, yeah. Japanese Central Bank of Japan. And they own, uh, I think it's about 80 percent of the equity ETFs representing 7 yes. 7 percent of the overall market. Now, they're at the extreme and they're going to they're going to keep going until they blow up. They're, you know, they're, they're in this vicious cycle. And by the way, everybody else is right behind them at different at different levels. Yes. But it's all we're all going in the same direction. A key point, though, again, that, yes, we're on that road. It's just, you know, Zimbabwe may have got there first, you know, and then you just keep yeah. on going. The hundreds or over 100, 150 countries in this same dilemma where now it's really reached where the currency is basically not buying anything. And especially now you price commodities in U.S. dollars and you have to convert local currency, which is, you know, not worth very much to many people. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that the world, that the rest of the world is looking for a global monetary restructuring, which I've been yes. writing about for a number of yeah. years now. I predicted it some years ago, and I, you know, no one believed me. They thought, ah, oh, the U.S. dollar, it's fine. It can never be challenged, blah, 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 blah. Well, you're seeing what's happening with the BRICS nations and this meeting they just finished in South Africa the last couple of days, where they've just admitted, by the way, six new members, Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, yeah. Egypt, Argentina, and Ethiopia. So now it's gone from uh, the five plus six, it's 11. And there's 20 more applicants. They're going to represent, w with all of these applicants and these new members, they, they're going to represent 80% of the world's population. And what do they want? 
They want a restructuring of the global monetary system. They've said it very loudly, very clearly. We're not sure how they're going to get there. I can give you a number of scenarios, which I've written about, but we're going through a de-dollarization by the non-Western countries, by you know, US, Europe, Canada, mm-hmm. Australia, Japan, South Korea, that's the West. And everybody else wants a change because they don't want commodities traded in US dollars. They don't want to issue their sovereign debt in US dollars because it hurts. It hurts them. It's inefficient. It's great for the US because the US can use its all this printed money that it can print endlessly um, to keep its inflation down. You know, the cost of imports are going to be cheaper if you're if you got a, a very strong currency. But the rest of the world is hurting and they don't like it. And so the Chinese have seen the opportunity since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the subsequent <clears throat> sanctions that follow the, you know, the freezing of Russian assets, the elimination from the SWIFT uh, currency settlement system. And they're going, well, <laughs> we don't want to be part of that anymore. So now China is using that opportunity to encourage the rest of the world to find different approaches to settling uh, trade between nations. And, I, you know, again, I don't know how much time we have on this call, but I've written a lot about it. You can go to frankjuster.com and I can show you all of the ways in which this de-dollarization is taking place. And that, in the long term, is going to be, have very serious consequences for the West because it will mean much higher inflation, higher interest rates, um, and a lower standard of living. Mm-hmm. You know, we've lived off of all of this, um, uh, you know, this fake money for so long that, you know, we think that we deserve it. And, you know, the rest of the world is going, no, you know, we've been hurting because of it. So they want to change. So that change will happen. It might happen quickly. It might take a decade, but it's happening. You know, one of the themes we've had on Money Talks is that we're in a monetary crisis. Um, what I've been thinking is that all of those things you've, you've, you've just alluded to, but I'm, I think that results in a new monetary system. Now, that's just a guess, as you say, sitting right here today. I'm looking out five, six years. Uh, that's where you might get digital currencies. But I'm not so sure it's just the U.S. dollar that goes in decline, but all paper currencies go into disrepute, and that produces a new sort of monetary system, which you've written about. But it might be, uh, you know, uh, a, sh- a foreshadowing might be what's going on with digital currencies or the hope for digital Yeah, but I don't currencies. think digital currencies answers the, the – it doesn't mm-hmm. answer the problem. I mean, first of all, it's it, uh, it's, it's inherent in man's nature – nature to destroy paper currencies. They've done it every single time throughout the centuries. So all paper currencies eventually go to zero, all of them. And, you know, and the today's paper currencies are no different. They get inflated away or they get destroyed one way or another. And, you know, the only remaining things are are hard assets. Um, But, uh, and, you know, so you have to really think about that when you're planning long-term, you know, what to do with your wealth um, because, if you're, you know, if you're only invested in paper currencies or their derivatives and, you know, treasuries, bonds, yes, what have right. you, you're going to get killed. Yeah. And, and as we've seen lots of signs of this, one of the things that, of course, uh, people become Western centric, or at least we're in Canada. We think about Canada, the U.S., West, Europe, uh, which has its problems along exactly what you're suggesting. But you look around the rest of the world and there's severe problems. But that brings me to uh, what you've just alluded to, and that's individuals sit there and they feel overwhelmed. They say, well, my God, what should I do? Because, I mean, look at how many people were hurt in the bond market in the last year, like dramatically hurt in exactly the way you mm-hmm. described with Hemingway. It starts slowly, then all of a sudden. Well, come on, the rise in interest rates has been a pretty good all of a sudden, which, of course, meant everybody who I look at the 10 year U.S. bond, anybody who's bought it in the last 16 years or whatever it is, is underwater with that. Yeah. And, and, you know, at, to your point, but the question everybody seems to have once they start understanding what you've been writing about is, OK, what do I do? Well, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. And there's so many variables, Michael, that it's absolutely impossible to predict a certain outcome. There's a probability of yes. different outcomes. And that's what you have to look at is where the probability wave goes. And you have to focus on that because anything can happen, but certain things yeah. are probable that will happen. <clears throat> you might get hyperinflation or you might get a depression or both. Um, and they're two opposite scenarios, right? You get hyperinflation 
you know, you want to own assets because they're going to go up in value. You don't want to own paper currencies. Depression, deflation, you want to have lots of cash to buy the assets as they, they're going down in value. So, um, you know, I, I, I think the only thing I've come to the conclusion lately that, you know, as Yogi Berra said, nobody knows nothing. And yeah. that is absolutely true. Nobody knows nothing because we don't know what's going to happen. So what do I do? I play defensive. That's mm-hmm. the only thing you can do is to be defensive. This is not the time to be bold and take, take the kind of risks that we've seen displayed the last few years since the pandemic. You know, this craziness in the marketplace of stocks, tech stocks and uh, yes. cryptocurrencies and NFTs and metaverse real estate. That was insanity. OK, <laughs> absolute insanity. And, you know, now we're slowly coming back to Earth. And there will be a crisis of some kind unfolding. So diversification, number one, geographical diversification, asset class diversification. I'm skewed towards hard assets, okay, because I truly believe in the destruct that we're going to see a destruction of currencies, okay, and, and the value of those currencies. So hard assets, what are they? They're gold, they're real estate, they're art collectibles, farmland, certain things that are tangible and scarce in supply. That's what you have to focus on. Now, you mentioned the uh, central bank digital currencies, which apparently there's about 114 countries that are testing or pilot testing or looking into creating their own digital currencies. But that doesn't mean anything. They can treat central bank digital currencies as they treat current fiat currencies. There's no limit on how much they can create if they need to. Now, obviously, they're not going to start out that way, but they have the power to change the rules. And, and, you know, I just think that I I don't like the idea of central bank digital currencies. Things gives way too much power to the central banks and they will use it eventually to influence your behavior. They will punish or reward you for certain types of spending behavior or investing behavior. And, you know, they're taking away all the power from the individual. And I think that that's a really, really bad idea. And I'm with you completely on that. Uh, what I want to come back to something you said, because, again, it's people should be aware of this. There's no, no examples of paper currencies ever lasting. I mean, they've all gone to nothing. And, uh, you know, they, they've disappeared, et cetera. And I just think you think we're going to be the first to buck the trend the way we're spending, the way we got physical and monetary policy. It's our fiscal. I mean, no. no, no. But I think that's, again, one of those things that people sort of go, really? Not one of them? Nope. No, <laughs> you no, know, just do you know, not enough people read history books. I wish yeah. more people read history books. Everything you're seeing today has happened before. These patterns are all the same throughout the centuries. The only thing that's changed is technology. Mm-hmm. Everything, human behavior has not changed. And you watch, you can chart it over the centuries. Ray Dalio did a great piece. I don't know if you read his book uh, yeah. about the, you know, the, uh, I can't remember, the, uh, it was whatever it's called. It's about the world, the, the changing world order. That was called. Yes. Read that book. He does an exquisite job of charting every powerful nation's rise and decline over the last five centuries. And it's always the same pattern. We, you know, we're all sitting here today because our entire lives, we've worked, lived in a system where it hasn't failed. So that's all we know. So we can't possibly imagine that it's going to fail because it's always worked throughout our lifetimes. Well, you know, math, you can't defy math. Math eventually catches up with you. And, you know, all of the weight of all of this debt and all this money printing, gravity will take hold. And so that's just, it's a question of time and it's a question of how it unfolds, but it will unfold and it's going to be very painful. And, and back to what you said, I mean, this is why I think people have to diversify, understand, as you say, there's many scenarios that can play out and prepare for them. But I love your comment that you're defensive. I, I am too, yeah. by the way, because I appreciate that if it moves against you, it's going to be violent. You know, it's yeah, going to be, it'll be about, a and usually it, yeah. and when you least expect it, you know, it's like right. everything's wonderful. And then one day you wake up and it isn't. And yeah. and everybody goes, oh, my God, what happened? Well, it's, you know, you've got three hundred trillion dollars worth of debt. Governments are loaded up to the eyeballs with debt and rates have been jacked up to five percent. 
things will break and they're going to continue to break until something major breaks. And when you lose the confidence, when people lose the confidence of their domestic currency, that's when you get hyperinflation. Exactly. And that's what people, this is the point that I love that you're making because people think you just print up money, you'll get hyperinflation. No, it's the confidence is the key variable. We're seeing it unravel throughout parts of the world. And your message is very clear. We've got to protect ourselves. Uh, Hey, Michael, I'll tell you a great story. I grew up in Argentina. I was in Argentina until I was uh, nine years old and we moved to Canada. Um, My father saw the writing on the wall in Argentina, things starting to fall apart. And he moved us, he's wisely moved us out before the poop hit the fan. Yeah. And we came here in 1966. Um, and he had invested uh, in a couple of businesses there, which he tried to sell and unwind, got into a few lawsuits. And by the time he collected his money, hyperinflation had set in and he got that much, zero. Yeah. The, the, he was paid back eventually, but that money he was paid back with had gone through a hyperinflationary period and it was worth nothing, absolutely nothing. Well, as I say, I think this is the key financial issue for individuals, for countries too, but it'll drill down as we've already been feeling it for individuals. That's why I encourage people to go to Frank underscore Justra on Twitter. Frank underscore Justra spelled G-I-U-S-T-R-A. Frank underscore Juicer, but you can find him in a lot of places. And, and Michael, include- also, uh, most of all my articles, whether they were originally mm-hmm. printed for the Toronto Star or, not, or other publications I've wrote, are on my blog, which is frankjuicer.com. Oh. And there you can see everything I've written about this stuff over the last number of years. Um, and it's, you know, I, I, you know, I don't pull punches. I, no. I see this coming and, and I talk about it. But you've got the incredible background to do that, the personal business experience, investing experience, et cetera, and historical perspective, as you said, which is missing far too often. And I yeah. would really encourage people to do that. Uh, FrankJustra.com. Again, one more time, Justra, G-I-U-S-T-R-A. Frank, thanks so much for finding time. I hope we can visit again in the near future. Michael, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Let me just say one other thing about Frank is uh, – you know, Frank is doing charitable work. Well, it's throughout the world, but in Canada too. And I, I want, it doesn't like it if I do this, but I'm going to do it because we need to help with Special Olympics. I gave Frank a call and man, did they deliver. And uh, so just a big thank you about uh, to Frank. I want to do a little something different this week and, and invite you to participate with me. You know, thanks to the work of people like Sam Cooper, who's now with the Bureau, and ceases. We get another revelation this week. We get a couple of revelations this week. Maybe it seems like every week about Communist Party of China's interference in Canada. This week, the Bureau's exclusive investigation series reveals that Beijing's top diplomats in Canada are getting and likely funding Chinese student associations to do aggressive intelligence operations that include monitoring and coercing other students and university officials. And we also got this week reports of Chinese interference in an effort to defeat Mayor uh, Brad West in the mayoral election in Port Coquitlam. Now, on Money Talks, we lauded Mr. West, going back a couple of years, for, uh, for his intense criticism of the Union of BC Municipalities that allowed China to sponsor its annual gala in 2019. Obviously, that didn't please the Communist Party. The bottom line is they've targeted Mr. West in the last mayoral election. But the real thing is this, we are nowhere near understanding the size and scope of Chinese interference in Canada our politics. And that's what led me to a poll question that I want your take on. We're going to be posting immediately on moneytalks.ca as well as our social media, Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And I really want you to answer this question. I want to know what you think about it. The quote, Canada should not hold a federal election until a full, independent public inquiry is held to expose the full extent of Chinese interference in Canada and our elections. Straightforward question. We should not hold a federal election until a full, independent public inquiry is held to expose the full extent of Chinese interference in Canada and our elections. Yes or no, or don't care. Just let us know what you think. Time now for the quote of the week. And maybe I'll introduce it with another quote. Sir Walter Scott famously wrote, 
Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Come on, there's much of the government's official COVID narrative that's unraveled, along with de facto censorship on social media, in the mainstream media, academia, academia, healthcare uh, circles of experts who question the government's narrative, all of that stuff. But let's keep in mind, it all started with lies from the Communist Party of China. The evidence has been clear as early as January 2020 that the Communist Party had lied about COVID. But when asked about that, the health minister actually called that a conspiracy theory. Prime Minister Trudeau and Canada's health officer, Theresa Tam, accused anyone who questioned the virus originated in China as being racist. But listen to this quote of the week. It's from the Washington Post editorial board. In quotes, Chinese authorities had acknowledged on December 31st, 2019, that there were 27 cases of pneumonia of unknown origin and 44 uh, confirmed cases on January 3rd, 2020. The Wuhan Health Commission reported 59 cases on January 5th, but then they reduced that abruptly from 40 uh, down to 41, didn't say why, and claimed there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission or any signs of doctors getting sick. Well, that was a complete lie. The coronavirus was running rampant. Doctors at the radiologist hospital and other hospitals were getting sick. But China's Communist Party leaders prize social stability above all else. They fear any sign of public panic or admission that the ruling party state is not in control. The authorities in both Wuhan and Beijing kept the situation quiet, especially because annual party political meetings were being held in Wuhan, capital of Hubei province, from Jan 6th to Jan 17th. Come on, secrecy has long been a major tool of the the governing Communist Party. It suppresses independent journalism, censors digital news and communications, and withholds vital information from its people. Doctors in Wuhan who knew the truth were afraid to speak out. China did not reveal human transition of the virus until January 22nd, and by then, the global pandemic had been ignited. End of quote. And the damage done. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in here right now. You know, Mike, we both appreciate, and I think everyone appreciates, the size of the federal deficit is a part of the political division. Some people are very worried about it. Others are not very worried about it. But still, in the last federal budget, our finance minister, Christia Freeland, and we talked about this last week, came out and said, sort of as a tip of the uh, 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 hat to people who are concerned about the rising budget deficit, saying, well, we're going to find $15 billion in savings. Now, I think the average person thinks they're going to reduce spending by $15 billion. But we found out this week that's actually not the case in one of my big WTFs of the year. <laughs> You're just breaking me up, Mike, because this is so simple. I just absolutely can't believe how they, uh, how the Minister of Finance and the government think that Canadians are so simple-minded that they would think because they're going to redirect the Liberals' spending from one ministry or one project to another that that's a cut. And, yeah. and I, I, I just I, I just shake my head. I want to repeat this because there's something I'm not getting. The fiscal forecast in the budget that the Liberals tabled in the spring includes that $15 billion of savings so we could fund the programs outlined in the budget. It is not new savings. It is redirected spending. What's so tough about that? They're not doing it. Yeah, well, as I say, I don't know there was a person who didn't hear that in the budget and go, oh, they're cutting $15 billion. and a lot of questions. How are they going to do it? That's what you were asking last week. Give me specifics. Well, they may have been listening to you, Mike, because they gave you a specific, and they came out and said, oh, that doesn't mean that federal spending is going to be cut. It just means we're spending it in different areas. As I say, that was a say what? <laughs> oh, I, You know, and, and the thing is, uh, when asked – when asked how Canadians would know that Freeland was serious about these cuts or non-cuts, her answer then had the whole thing make sense. I'm quoting her. This is not me. We are liberals. That's yeah. her answer. Yeah. Um, Treasury. I guess, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that just reinforces this is part of the huge political divide in the country. There are people who are worried about uh, debt. 
they are worried about, you know, we're at 1.1 trillion and they're worried about, you know, parliamentary budget officers, others come out and say, well, your interest expense is really going to explode. Uh, it, it is going to explode, Mike. Uh, debt interest charges are projected to rise from a pre-pandemic level of $20.4 billion. That's pre-pandemic debt interest. That's the interest they're paying on the debt to $43.9 billion this year, almost twice the national defense budget. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that's what they're going to do, and they're telling me they're cutting? Yeah, I mean, that's what I I think has been astounding in this, is they clearly don't have that priority. They don't have as big a worry as some Canadians. Others don't have a worry about this, that, in fact, that we've got this escalating consumer debt. But, you know, as you heard, I just talked to Frank Joustra, and I think he's dead right. The future is uncertain about this. And I, I worry about it when I look around the world. You can't, you know, assumptions about what interest rates are going to be which they did not predict in the last couple of years, this massive quick jump, well, that could put us in really big trouble that way when you see the escalation of this. But, and again, there's so many questions about this. So I guess, I guess uh, they don't have any plan to actually tackle the debt other than through their familiar economic growth will take care of it. But you know what, Mike, you're absolutely right. But they're not saying that. The cutting of the national Cutting the deficit, bringing it down to zero, then starting to work on the debt is not part of any of their documents. That's yes. not front and center. The federal debt now stands at $1.1 trillion, and Parliament has not balanced the budget since 2007. Mike, if you thought, or we thought, the Fitch downgrade from AAA to AA plus was an outlier, but it was not going to have any other impact. Mike, the other rating agencies are going to take a look at this and mark my words, and I'll come back and remind our listeners, we are in for other downgrades because we are not focused on our debt or cutting our deficit. Well, there's a large contingent uh, who, when we you know, sort of project these higher deficits, uh, of economists who said we can afford it. They said it's affordable. I had a strong, really virulent kind of criticism of that. You've got to give me what assumptions you're making. If somebody is telling me the debt is affordable, then you've got to be telling me what assumptions you're making about global growth, about Canada's growth, about the export markets, about the currency, about inflation, but especially about interest rates. I mean, all of that is in this mix. And as Frank was just explaining, that kind of spending you know, erodes the purchasing power when we're just flooding the system yeah. with newly created money. And again, I want to continue to acknowledge there is disagreement on this. But in my opinion, when you run up the debt like this, you're putting yourself, uh, your risk is higher. That's one thing is a fact. Your risk is definitely higher. But let me come back to what we originally said, Mike. Come on. They were going to cut $15 billion and now we find out not really. I mean, that's the part that grabbed my attention. And I have one last question, and I'm asking it, not you. Does the Liberal government think that Canadians who must manage their own personal debt, all of us, assume that government has free money? Do they think that we're stupid? And, and yeah. I mean, that's the feeling. And I'm not, I'm not going over the top being anti-liberal or anti-political or whatever you want to say. It's just that give me at least give me the benefit of having common sense. We all have to deal with our debt. We all have to do within, deal with interest charges. Why wouldn't the government think that we would expect them to do that also? Well, as I say, that's one of the monster disagreements in this country today, uh, you know, regarding the federal debt. But back to the original point, hey, they're not interested in cutting. They may reorganize spending, but come on, they're still running up the deficit. Mike, thanks for taking the time. And yes, people can send all the hate mail to you. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Have a good weekend, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I got to just tell you personally, earlier this week, I received what I thought was or I calculated was the 14th letter of the year from one of the three levels of government regarding taxes. I think it's actually that's short selling it. I think there was much more. Uh, to put it mildly, I feel like I'm under assault. And I think that's a reflection of the number of taxes we pay. I mean, we're all familiar with income tax or a sales tax or a payroll taxes in certain provinces. I know they're different, but you could have a health tax like you do in British Columbia. We all pay tariffs, though, you know, or the cost of a tariff. 
corporate taxes that get passed on to consumers wherever possible. We got mandatory transfers to government, and it could be something like Canada Pension Plan, employment insurance, and a reminder, employment insurance just goes straight to general revenues. And none of that just tells the whole story. It just gives us a flavor. You know, last week I got Aussie to read off the list of charges that developers pay on a new condo development, and it was a long one. It wasn't that either Aussie or I thought this was a scintillating way to go on in the podcast. No, but it conveyed the point that taxes, fees, levies could add up to about 29% of the overall cost of a new condo. Of course, the percentage does vary by jurisdiction, but the point remains it's a long list everywhere. Same with buying gasoline, where what? Something like 30% of the cost of a liter goes to government. And again, the specific percentage can depend on your jurisdiction. Vancouver's the worst, by the way, the highest. Alberta is the lowest. But no matter where you live in Canada, government accounts for a big chunk of the price at the pump. I mean, they take a piece of everything we buy. And that is after they took a piece of your income, right? We earn, we pay our income tax, what we get left over, we pay on anything we spend. I mean, it list goes on. I, as I said, I feel under assault. And that brings me to the shocking stats of the week. A new study by the Fraser Institute provides a series, actually, of shocking stats, starting with the total tax bill of the average Canadian family. Now, think about this. They look at this period, 1961 to 2022, all types of taxes. You know what? Your tax burden is gone. 2,778%. Are you kidding? No wonder I was shocked. That's a huge number. And that's way more than the cost, the rising cost of housing, for example. Uh, they've risen well over twice as much as the cost of food. Actually, it's closer to three times as much. Here's the thing. In 2022, the average Canadian family earned, on average, as I say, 106000 and paid total taxes of 48000 Come on, that's 45% of our income. Over a third more in taxes as that percentage as it was in 1961. And even after adjusting for inflation, the average family's tax bill has gone up 199% since then. Come on, we pay more in taxes than we do for food, shelter, and clothing combined. It reminds me of the old Will Rogers observation. There's not a man in this country that can't make a living for himself and family, but he can't make a living for them and his government too. And until we rally against that, all of the ways, it's an ever-increasing tax burden for everyone in Canada. And that's something, as I say, I think at some point, it's our fault. Ozzy Jurek joins me now to talk about the hottest topic in the country, and that's housing, affordable housing, as we've been alluding to for three years, affordable rents. I still think that's going to be the social dynamic that for forces tremendous change. Ozzy joins me right now. You can find him, by the way, at www.ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, you know, the federal government goes into a retreat in Prince Edward Island, and, of course, I always think this is the, the country, the, rather, the government, that have spent more money on polling than any government previously. And I can always tell what the pollings told them because they come out then and make uh, all sorts of pronouncements around that. In this case, we're talking about housing. You know, the problem's been with us for years, but we're talking about it now. Uh, did you, but they've left that retreat with no concrete plans. Yeah, and they, not only that, but there is the Canadian Taxpayer Federation saying that one of the guests there was our very own UBC professor, Kershaw, who uh, got some fame by getting 450000 of funding from the government to push for a home equity tax. And he did that in early January 2022. And, of course, there was a lot of pushback. But the key was he, of course, thinks that we're all some very strange people having made this uh, strange uh, windfall. But he forgets that if you're adding more taxes, like his idea of 1% for every million dollars, imagine you stayed 20 years for your home and now you owe $200,000. What really has happened is that the government has grabbed your equity because the idea that you can buy the same house for the, for the same price, it's ridiculous because we are devaluing our currency all the time, so things yeah. are more expensive. So I don't know whether he was actually there, but if he was there, is hang on to your hats and get ready to complain. Well, one of the challenges is that the government's 
need money. They're desperate for money. So where do Canadians have their money? Well, they'll have it in their houses. They may have it in their pensions if they're lucky. You know, but that's really about it when you look at the statistics. So, you know, and clearly real estate's been under the gun. I mean, we have all sorts of, you know, when the NDP government came in in British Columbia, they spent about five minutes before they introduced a couple of new house taxes, you know, which their partner in, in the government at that time was the Green Party. And they said, this is nothing but a cash grab. So I, I think it's against that context that I worry when I have people who are in favor of more taxes on housing. But as you say, we'll have to see how that works out. I think the key there, though, is that the government, uh, they left the retreat without a specific plan, except for, I'd give them uh, this, is that the uh, housing minister, Sean Fraser, at least acknowledged they may have to look at some of the uh, visa numbers coming in because, of course, that's been a huge story. That I don't know how it's just occurred to them, by the way. How is this sunny a news flash? <laughs> you know, because it's been a problem we've talked about for years is when people come in on a, wor- a temporary work visa, student visa, hey, they got to live somewhere. And I think that's what's getting reflected right now when you have some of these massive increase in population. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's more than annoying because Herschel said that housing wealth windfalls gained by homeowners while they sleep and watch TV, you know, yeah. it, it's totally disregarding that who's responsible for the increases in huge inflation and the pressures and the devaluating of the currency and so on. The key is the government's concern about housing affordability. It's simply this. It wants more for itself, not for you. <laughs> well, what's interesting is the debate about affordability has been with us for decades, but it's also international. I mean, I was looking at some of the uh, numbers coming out of the States, same things we've got, rising mortgage rates, although they're more likely to have a, thir- a ni- uh, what is it, a 30-year mortgage. <laughs> I was going to say 90. That's us. No, a 30-year mortgage where we're most popular mortgage is five. But it, it was really interesting to see the parallel discussions in the UK here, you, uh, uh, Australia especially, all talking about the lack of affordability. Yeah, there's the Kobasi letter that uh, is Kobasi, I guess, uh, letter that first of all points out that the 8% mortgage, that 30-year rate, uh, is now the highest level in 23 years. And, uh, and so while that makes some history, it, it's kind of interesting to have a couple of numbers. Adjusting for inflation, home prices in the U.S. are 118%, but the household income has only increased by 15%, you know. So the, the whole idea is that 90% of major metals in the United States have now a price-to-income ratio where the maximum recommended rate is exceeded vastly. And so it, there's a whole bunch of uh, things in that letter. So for somebody that's really interested, it's a great also Twitter post with a lot of people uh, chiping in. But when you look at just in 2006, the mortgage rates in many United States uh, – we're approaching about 5%. The median house cost was now was then 360% on the median income, and now it's 560% of median income. It's a huge increase of the average person uh, trying to afford the payment right in the middle of the government telling us they're working on affordability. Yeah. Well, and you look at our July sales numbers across Canada, uh, we keep reading what you had been writing about in Ausbuds going back a couple of years is that, you know, if your mortgage isn't portable, you can't afford to leave your house now. You know, in the last year, you can't afford to leave the house with because you can't assume the higher mortgage rates if it is if your mortgage isn't coming with you. And and I, I we're hearing about record lows in mortgage, uh, you know, uh, applications. Uh, you've been talking about the stress test going way up. No wonder people are backing away. And yeah, we're seeing it back to July is that sort of the buzz of that uh, statement in March that maybe we won't be raising rates has certainly got people in. Uh, I'm going on and on, but the bottom line is it's all coming to fruition. At least those July numbers were dismal. Well, there's certainly a dismal in here, but also in the States, the July, July wholesales were almost 17% lower than they were in 2022, and 2022 was no great mm-hmm. uh, income. That's, I continue to be amazed how few people remember that most of our sales in 2022 were down 40 or 50% below right. 2021. So overall, the rates are you know, astounding. Uh, the affordability is, is non-existent. But the market seemed to be, uh, you know, under under great pressure because the individuals will not leave their mortgage behind. But think yeah. about this: as Mr. Kershaw's great idea comes in, are you oh. ever going to leave your own house? Yeah. I mean, there's another reason why you you will not leave your house, and therefore you'll never put that house on the market, and it 
deletes the supply even more. <laughs> yeah, it's going to kill the industry there. Yeah. Uh, let me come. I just mentioned this a moment ago, but you'll know it off the top of your head. What's the stress test? I'm, I'm coming in. I need a mortgage. I've got to pass the stress test. Is that what? Seven and a half percent now? It's a shame. It's two percent above your best uh, five-year term, and that is right now six point zero nine. So two percent above is eight point zero nine. Uh, that's substantial, you know, when you consider that uh, it was probably very hard to qualify at 6%. And again, we're getting the mortgage renewals in Canada because it's a five-year popular mortgage. So they're just going to start hitting in 2023, 24, 25, in that period. And that, that's going to be really problematic. I know I talk about it all the time, but I worry about people's bottom line. Yeah, and it's it's uh, all I have to do is... Uh, go make a speech somewhere or talk, talk real estate. And that's always the thing. When are rates going to come down? When can I afford again? When is there more supply? Now, there's a little bit more supply coming in. Uh, I guess as people renew their mortgages, uh, some of them decide to sell. But overall, the market is surprising and astounding and, and uh, not predictable. Yeah, well, we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Well, the other thing, just very quickly, Canadians have made it clear their housing is their priority. So that's why we've had such low delinquency rates on mortgages. Other things may suffer. They may run up a credit card bill or they may cut back X. But it seems like the last bastion for Canadians is protecting their home ownership. Yeah, this is why it always amazes me. We are, we are accepting 23% on our credit card. That's normal. We're not we're not worried yeah. about it, but if we're worried about a homeowner whose rate of default is less than 1% nationally and hasn't changed even through the pandemic. Well, I'll invite people to go to ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy has, ta- has predicted it, though it forecasts the hottest problems or challenges in the country today. He's been talking about, but you can get updates with him on ozbuzz.ca. Or, of course, here every week, too, Ozzy, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, you go out and have a terrific week. Thank you, Mike. And it's funny, you know, being a grandfather, I sometimes have the little guys and gals in my house. And, you know, I sometimes I'm with Jerry Seinfeld who said a two year old is kind of like a blender, but you don't have any top for it. <laughs> and by the way, I'm sitting here nodding my head with a two and a half year old grandson myself. Ozzy Jurek, Ozbuzz.ca. <laughs> Let's go live to the trading desk. I mean, it was a big week. Lots of stuff on the plate. Victor Dare joins me right now. Victor, let me just start quickly with, I mean, all the eyes were on Jackson Hole, you know, the traditional uh, speech this time, of course, uh, coming from Jerome Powell. You know, I sat there and it's not that he said nothing. I'm not critical of the speech. I still think we should listen to what the guy says, but I'm not sure if that was, you know, some big news for the markets. Well, let's preface that by saying Jackson Hole has been a gathering for the past several years around this time of the year uh, of central bankers from around the world, you know, and they get together there and I guess compare notes, talk to each other and whatever off the record. But the market certainly was looking forward to the Friday morning speech from the chairman, Powell, and he basically reiterated that inflation is staying higher for longer than they like and that they're going to have to keep doing what they've been doing to try to get it down. And I think the market really has been waiting for a year, you know, for the Fed to please stop raising interest rates so the stock market will go up. Well, you know, they they were disappointed once again. Well, let me come to something you talked about right on time. Nice timing. July 18th, you said turning point in the market. Well, nothing in the speech certainly didn't change that, but turning point in the market, and that sure looks like a good call. I mean, we've had some major moves. Yeah, uh, I mean, specifically, I guess, in mid-July, I was referencing when the share pre- the market capitalization of uh, Microsoft jumped $100 billion in less than an hour when they announced something related to increasing their billing for AI-related tech. And then w- within two days, that, that $100 billion gain was all gone. Mm-hmm. Since then, of course, the stock markets have been weaker, but I've been focused on interest rates. And the bond yields hit a, lo- a little low in mid-July, and then yields have been rising steadily. I mean, for the past six weeks, Mike, the yield on the 10-year Treasury has gone up every week. And that has showed up in other markets. So 
The U.S. dollar index has been higher for six consecutive weeks. The stock market has been lower, I think, for, mm, I'm going to say, four out of those six weeks. But let's say the NASDAQ is down about 8%. The S&P is down about 5%. I think the rising interest rates here have been the, what's in the driver's seat. Let's put it that way. Uh, not to, I don't want to digress, but it also had a big impact on gold, too. Yeah, the gold market, uh, let's say gold prices are down about $125 since mid-July. I think that's about 6% if I can do the math in my head with my eyes closed. Um, Rising U.S. dollar and rising real and nominal interest rates is just generally a toxic environment for gold. And I think gold people just lost interest in it to, it to some degree. In my blog a, a few weeks ago, I, I made reference that buying gold was like dancing with your grandmother, you know, <laughs> when there was a lot more exciting things to do, say, you know, in, in the big tech markets. Uh, your point's well taken. There's alternatives for that. Uh, just interesting, though, as you said, that mid-July seems you looked at the interest rates, especially that 10-year treasury note on the U.S. I think it's incredibly significant to financial stability in that everybody who bought a 10-year bond, U.S. 10-year bond, very popular, you know, in the last whatever it is, 16 years, is underwater with it. They're losing money. And that's a, a real key that people have to understand. That was the problem for Silicon Valley Bank when they needed to raise money. Well, their sort of, in quotes, portfolio had lost so much money. Whereas I was talking to Frank Juster earlier here, you know, the UK pension fund problem really was all the losses they had on the books in their bonds. Uh, you know, and you just mentioned, I mean, that US dollars had a huge revival impacting gold. NASDAQ goes down. You know, the list is a long one, all coming out of that pivotal time frame. Yeah, I mean, the reasons for why the mm-hmm. interest rates have been going up. And I think in a way, you know, Chairman Powell at Jackson Hole just reiterated this or reinforced it. It's the thinking that inflation and it interest rates are going to stay higher for longer. So what has happened is the yield curve has steepened. And I won't get too fancy here, but that just means that longer term rates have gone up more than shorter term rates, although uh, at the shorter term rate level, the market's expectation for where short rates will be about six months from now has increased by 50 basis points since the middle of July. So it's been an across the curve increase in interest rates. And um, the reasons, you know, we've talked before, I think the the market's perception that there's going to be more and more uh, fiscal stimulus. The governments have discovered that voters like fiscal stimulus. Gee, no kidding. So that means, you know, more supply in in a supply-demand equation. More supply is likely to put pressure on prices. I mean, the the people will buy the government debt. It's just a question of at what price. Yeah. Uh, Let me finish with this, Vic. We had the Republicans, because obviously what happens politically in the U.S. has a huge impact internationally, and our domestic economy, you know, it's big. And they had the Republican leaders debate without Donald Trump. And you had sent me a little note earlier talking about one of the more shocking stats of the week because the Trump campaign, Mr. Trump said, hey, I'm not going to participate. There's nothing for me to win in that. So we went on Tucker Carlson. And unbelievable what you sent me. I want you to relay it, though. You were the one who gave me the info. Well, what I saw on Friday, and the numbers probably changed since then, but that interview was about a 30-minute, no, a 50-minute interview between Tucker Carlson and, and Trump on Twitter has had 250 million views. Yeah. And I, I don't think there was anywhere near that many people that were watching the rest of the herd, you know, de- yeah. debate on uh, CNN or whatever it was. I'm not sure what that means other than, you know, Trump has this incredible ability to draw attention to himself, is what my grandmother used to say. Well, he's definitely the front runner, you know, and we were talking in a goofy award a few weeks back that Joe Biden and Donald Trump may be just enough to to uh, as as Frank Juster, it's interesting to hear him talking the same way we do on Money Talks about declining confidence in systems. And I think that is the key component still, the key overlay. Well, it looks like I can't think of another twosome that could decline confidence more and hence that trend. 
<laughs> trend than those two. And that what that showed me was clearly that Donald Trump is the front runner in the Republicans, which is consistent with the polls. But that was a great stat. I want to thank you for sending it down to me. In the meantime, Vic, I'll tell people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, you go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy. Well, from the Prime Minister to numerous cabinet members, along with the Premier of British Columbia, well, they seem to want to spend the week insulting the intelligence of Canadians by suggesting we don't have the capacity to type in an internet address of a single major news outlet, or we don't know how to use Twitter or turn on the TV or radio for that matter. What I'm referring to is the over-the-top concern that Meta which no longer will provide links to Canadian news pages. Ergo, Canadians will have no idea what's going on with the wildfires. The Prime Minister called it inconceivable that Canadians will not be able to get updated on the fire situation. Well, I think it's inconceivable to think that Canadians don't know how to turn on the TV news, tune in the radio, type in the web address from, well, any of our major Canadian news sites. Well, it could be Global TV, you know, global.ca or cbc.ca, CTV, etc or go to X, formerly known as Twitter, for literally hundreds of updates, including from the government of Canada. Come on, I just found it amazing. But what's more, they don't seem to understand what Bill C-18 is. I mean, all it did is it gave social media giants like Meta and Google one of two choices. One, if you link to Canadian news sites, you gotta pay the government for those links. And if you don't link, well, then you don't owe anything. Well, Meta chose the latter, it's not linking. But from the comments, it's clear that the politicians are either being disingenuine with, uh, disingenuous with the criticism of Meta, or they simply don't understand Bill C-18. I mean, it's truly astounding and frightening. And what about their lack of understanding of business risk management? Come on, no company was going to sign on to something like Bill C-18 that included unlimited financial risk. That shouldn't be tough to understand. I mean, it says that companies will pay depending on how many people access the Canadian news links. But there's no way to know how many will do that, hence you don't know your financial liability. But the fact that politicians and other critics of Meta don't understand that it's frightening. I mean, and it's led to directly to the current Bill C-18 debacle. But back to the idea that Canadians don't know how to access information on their own without relying on having to link through Facebook. I come on, that's a bit more uh, you know, than just insulting. It's basically saying we're all idiots. With If that's not the case, case of the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. Hey, but thanks for the grandstanding. Hey, before we go, I got a couple of things for you. I mentioned the contest, of course. We're giving away 10 billion dinara bill for people who sign up with five minutes with Mike, which you can easily do, by the way, by just simply going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. But our contest winners, Shauna G., Rick M, William M. All three are the only people in their neighborhood, I'm pretty sure about this, who have a 10 billion dinara bill. And one more reminder, we've got the poll question and you can weigh in now. Canada should not hold a federal election until a full independent public inquiry is held to expose the full extent of Chinese interference in Canada and our elections. The answers, yes, no, don't care. I hope you join us. We want your input, looking forward to it. And in the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous week.